and it is the problem of perspective, the problem of knowing and doing the will of God. And so James asks and answers the question, how can the person who's been saved, redeemed, who has his name written in the Lamb's book of life, who's headed for heaven, how does he invest his life while here on earth properly? Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is titled Vapor Theology. Pastor Carl begins his study in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, where we will be discussing the problem of perspective, specifically the difference between knowing and doing the will of God. Let's join Pastor Carl as he explains and highlights what that difference is. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to invite you to take it and turn to the Epistle of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this marvelous letter. It's just 108 verses, and some of you have been reading it every day since we started last January, and it is beginning to imprint in your soul. That's what it does when you read and reread a book. Some of you are doing it once a week, and that's fantastic. Now, we've learned that James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He grew up in the family that Jesus grew up in. Obviously, Jesus did not have a human father, but they had the same mother, and so he was his half-brother. And he is a man who, like Christ, wants to give instruction, but he wants to take instruction and put it into practice. The writer of the Hebrews says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So God gave His Word not to satisfy our curiosity, but to change our lives, not to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's revelation, when it's read and when it's studied and put into practice, changes the life from the inside out. And he has spoken clearly and certainly has not stuttered. Now, if you've been with us, you know that this is a book that is absolutely packed and overflowing with application. And before I read our passage for this morning, we're in James 4. Let me set the context of our passage, the immediate context. In the fourth chapter, he deals with three difficult issues in the Christian community. There were problems in James's day, and there are problems in our day. In verses 1 through 10, he deals with the problem of worldliness. Christians who, in some respects, were worldly. God hasn't called you to be worldly. He's called you to be holy. And some of the people in this fellowship were living like the lost people of this world, and that, as the opening verse of chapter 4 indicates, they were involved in quarrels and conflicts. We saw that the word for quarrels is the word polemis, comes giving us directly our word polemic. A polemic is an argument, a verbal attack. And so there were these uh, wars, so to speak, that were unfolding in the church, quarrels. Then he uses a different word, conflicts, that is a word that was used in the first century for a skirmish, a battle within a larger war. So taking these two words together, there was outbursts, of anger and division, and there was this ongoing battle, as it were, conflicts and quarrels. 
And notice the text says, within their members. He's not talking about the folks out there. He's talking about the folks in here. And God hasn't called us to live like the world. He's called us to be distinctively different. So that's the first problem, the problem of worldliness. Then in verses 11 and 12, if you were here with us last time, he deals with the problem of judging, the problem of criticism, the problem of slandering or speaking unfairly about a brother or sister in the Lord. And you might expect that. There is always a spirit of judgment when there's quarrels and conflicts within the fellowship. One feeds the other. Now, the third problem is the one that we come to today, and it's found in verses 13 through 17, and it is the problem of perspective, the problem of knowing and doing the will of God. And so James asks and answers the question, how can the person who's been saved, redeemed, who has his name written in the Lamb's book of life, who's headed for heaven, How does he invest his life while here on earth properly? And so the title of this sermon is Vapor Theology because James is going to underscore that our life is like a vapor. Yet the way you invest your vapor will determine what you are like for all of eternity. All right, James 4, we want to begin reading in verse 13 where we left off last time. Follow along in your Bible. Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. What a chapter. It begins talking about war with God, and it ends unfolding the will of God. And the two subjects are intertwined together because a Christian typically who is out of the will of God is out of God's will because he's at war with other believers. And so Satan wants you to be divided against your brother. And Paul says your real enemy is not flesh and blood. It's not the brother or sister, your wife, your husband. The real enemy are powers and principalities that are at work. And so if you think about it, the will of God is often lost by people who are troublemakers within the church or people who are just plain out of fellowship with God. And there are illustrations all the way through Scripture. Think about Lot. He moved to Sodom. He started on the edge of the city. By the time he was done, he was on the city council, so to speak. He went to a place he should have never have gone, a place covered over in sin and immorality and perversion. And as a result, he got his family into deep trouble. Think about King David. He got out of fellowship with God, should have been out in the battle. Instead, he was at home, and he saw a beautiful Bathsheba, and he ended up committing adultery. And that one decision created problems for the rest of his life. Think about Jonah. He steps out of the will of God. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. The Ninevites, they're Israel's enemies. We don't want to preach the gospel to the Ninevites Go to Nineveh. So what does he do? He goes in the opposite direction. 
And of course, the decision that he makes almost results in a whole group of sailors drowning because of his rebellion. So God has a will for your life. God has a broad will, a general will, but God also has a very specific will. Paul says you're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Salvation is God's gift, not as a result of works, so no one can boast or brag. But then he says in the next verse, for we are his workmanship. The word workmanship is the Greek word poema. We get our English word poetry. It's a beautiful word picture. We're God's poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're created to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know that God has a plan, a tailored plan, as it relates to your specific life? In describing the will of God, whether it's general or specific, Paul says it is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. But unfortunately, too many Christians look at the will of God sometimes as a bitter medicine and not coming really from the heart of a loving God. I love Psalm 33, 11. It says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So the will of God comes from the heart of God. It's not something that is to be ignored or despised, but, but something that is to be prayerfully obeyed and embraced because it comes from his loving heart. And so in these five verses of Scripture, we basically have three attitudes towards the will of God. He deals with two incorrect attitudes in verses 13 and 14, and then again in verses 16 and 17, and then sandwiched between the two is the correct attitude that we should have towards God's will. If you're online, there's a note-taking outline you can print out. There's one in your bulletin if you're here for the first time. We want to begin by examining the foolishness of ignoring God's will. The foolishness of ignoring God's will. James begins by telling us of a first century wheeler dealer of sorts, here in verse 13, of a shrewd businessman who had some very astute plans. Now, in the eyes of the world, this businessman would have been considered a great success. But in God's eyes, he was a successful failure. Look at verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Have you ever heard that statement before? Of course you have. That's the statement of the marketplace. What are you going to do tomorrow? Well, we're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to go to Atlanta. And after Atlanta, we're going to go to New York and then maybe Chicago. And we are going to engage in business deals. We'll be there for so long. And certainly we're going to make some serious money. We're going to pull this off. And James says, hold it. Wait a minute. Yet, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So James reveals for us the foolishness of ignoring the will of God. And there are two errors in this man's thinking that uh, he just seems to ignore what God wants for him. He underscores that he has a bad attitude, the wrong attitude, and he has a bad or wrong assumption. His attitude is that he's self-sufficient. He's not planning with God. He's planning independently of God. And so his travel plans are to go to the next city. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. 
He didn't say, Lord, where do you want me to go? He took out his map, laid it out. He thought, this is a booming area. This is where we need to go. This is where we need to make a profit. In fact, the word here for you who say, it's one word in Greek. It refers to a consistent, ongoing, well thought through, reasoning kind of plan. In other words, this is not just spur of the moment. He had been thinking about this for some time. This is not haphazard and spontaneous. This is a well thought through, reasoned plan, but independent of God. Now, if you've read any of the historians, both Jewish and Gentile from the first century, the Jewish people were known as great traders. They had an ability to make money, and they still do. And it is not by accident. God has blessed the Jewish people, even Jewish unbelievers. Why? Because he is going to complete human history through the nation of Israel. God is setting the stage for the return of his son. Israel is back in the land. Yes, there's a skirmish going on there. They come and go all the time, but Israel cannot be destroyed. They are back in the land, and God is going to complete his will and his purpose for the ages through that. And so in the first century, they were known as great traders. In fact, cities were being founded. It was a growing economic time. And if you were Jewish and you wanted to bring your business to a particular city, history records that citizenship was free. Why? Because you would come and help prosper our town. You would make money. Now, remember whom James is addressing. He's addressing Jewish Christians, what today we would call a completed Jew. It's not an oxymoron to say that someone is a Jewish Christian. When you are a Jew and believe in Jesus as Messiah, you don't lose your Jewishness. Jewishness is an ethnicity. Jews aren't converted Jews. They're not converted Jews. Once a Jew, always a Jew. Now, someone could be a drunk who's converted from alcohol, or someone could be a Buddhist who's converted from Buddhism to Christianity, But a Jew is not converted from his Jewishness because it's an ethnicity. It means you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jewishness, of course, biblically speaking, was determined by the Father. So here is these Jewish believers, as the opening verse of the epistle indicates, who were great businessmen, and they saw an opportunity, and they are headed. And again, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there. He took out his calendar, and he thought, this is what I'm going to do. He hasn't prayed about how he's going to use the 365 days God has given him in a year. He is going to do as he sees fit. He's self-confident about the place. He's self-confident about the period of time. And he's self-confident about the procedure and the profit that's going to come. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Engage in business and make a profit. So he reasons, I'm going to engage in business. And probably he was a merchant of sorts. How do I know? Well, one, history records, that's what the Jews were known for. Two, that was the principal business in the first century. And three, the word for business is the Greek word. It almost sounds like our English word emporium. It comes directly from Greek into English as emporium. And an emporium, of course, was a center of trade. 
And so they were known for buying and selling and conducting business. And with a sense of confidence, he says, I'm going to make a profit. He predicted his profit. He boasted about his profit. He's not praying about it. He just believes it is going to happen. And he is an illustration of a man who's driven by earthly profits and not eternal treasure. Now, don't forget, James 1.1, the opening verse, we spent one sermon on one verse, was so critical to the foundational truths that we've been studying in this book. He's writing to the diaspora, to those Jews who've been spread like seeds, scattered, and these are congregations of Jews across Israel, across the section of the world to whom ministry is being done. Now, think with me for just a moment. Let me bring it down to where we live. You see, well, I'm not a businessman. I don't travel to this city or that city. I, I just live here in our town, and that's about the full size of it. Well, let me bring it down to where you sleep, because he's not just talking about businessmen. He's talking about the principle of living independently of God, and he's using the businessman as an illustration. He can be speaking this morning about your family, about your marriage, about your education, about your leisure. So what was this past week like? How did you live it out? Did you live it out prayerfully? planning with the Lord, engaging your day with Him? Did you start the day with Him and say, Lord, this is, this is what I have planned today, and I want your best, and if you want to change my plans, or, but I certainly don't want to live out these plans independently of you. I want to live out these plans in dependence upon you. We're to practice the presence of God. There was a book written that by that title, Practicing the Presence of God. It was a terrible book by Charles Sheldon. The title was fantastic. He was an apostate. He was a liberal. He didn't believe in the authority of Scripture, the deity of Christ. But nonetheless, he wrote Practicing the Presence of God. And based on that book, years ago, people used to wear these little bracelets, W, w uh, what would Jesus do? WWJD, what would Jesus do? It was based on that book. But the concept was a good concept. We are to practice the presence of God. We are to walk closely with Him each and every day, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our place of work, in our neighborhood. So when the phone rings unexpectedly, and you have a, a plan that you have determined to carry out, can God change that plan? Can he redirect your steps when you encounter such changes? See, a lot of us live like practical atheists. We're not living in dependence upon the Lord. And James is simply saying to this guy who is so confident, I'm going to such and such a city. I'm going to spend so much time there. I'm going to engage in such and such a trade, and I'm going to make money. And he's asking, where is God in all of this? Are you living for God's glory, for God's kingdom, for God's will? for things that really matter, that things that are beyond this life. Now, understand, God's not against planning. You should plan. God's not even against the concept, I'm planning to go to such and such a city. He's not against wise planning. What he is against is planning that's done without him. God teaches the concept that we should plan. In Proverbs chapter 6, Solomon said this, Go to the Anno sluggard, observe her ways, and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision and the harvest. That involves planning. 
such that in seasons of plenty, instead of spending it all, you lay some aside for seasons of need. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is, but be filled with the Spirit. And he prefaces that by saying, make the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. God wants you and I to make the most of our time because we live in an evil and fallen world. Jesus underscored the need to plan and that great parable of what it means to be a disciple. In Luke 14, he made this statement. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man man began to build and was not able to finish. So neither James nor Jesus nor Solomon were against planning. They were against planning without God. They were not against anticipating the future, but they were against anticipating the future in a secular way like a practical atheist doing it without the living God. And we as Christians can live and plan and act. Remember who the audience is here. He's talking to save born-again people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life who are headed for heaven. And sometimes we just ask God to, to bless our plans ever before we ask God to reveal His plan. And it's not our life to plan. We affirm that we've been bought with a price that we're not our own and we are to glorify God in our body However, this man, he, he also made a wrong assumption. Look at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Two truths you can absolutely count on concerning the future. One is that only God knows the future. The other is that we don't. Tomorrow's circumstances are uncertain. I mean, before the day is over, you could get a phone call and everything changes. All of a sudden, there is... The death of a spouse, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. All kinds of things that you didn't count on come down the pike. And God wants us to be careful. I mean, think about the people this morning as I'm preaching who are in the emergency room. They didn't wake up this morning and say, I think we'll go to the emergency room so we can sit there for six hours and be ignored. No, not at all. Just ha Something happened. A crisis suddenly came. And they had no choice. And that's the truth that James wants us to get a hold of here. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. In fact, he says you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Your life, when compared to eternity, is like steam coming out of a kettle, appears for a moment and then is gone. The Phillips translation, a paraphrase, one of the first ones ever done in the 1950s in England, J.B. Phillips rendered this verse, what after all is your life? It's like a puff of smoke visible for a little while and then dissolving into thin air. You and I sit here this morning, we hear this verse, and all of us are one heartbeat away from eternity. You're healthy, you're young, you're vibrant, but you have no promise of tomorrow. Sometimes the old man, the old woman, all of a sudden gives out and they die, but sometimes it's a little child who lays down his or her toys and suddenly is gone. I mean, how many of you are planning to die in this calendar year? 
Probably none of us. I'm not dying this year. How about next? Certainly not next year. How about the next year? I don't think so. But if this is a typical year, I'll do a dozen funerals for people who weren't planning to die. One of those days, it will be your funeral. One of those days, it will be mine. But some of us, we have it all figured out. We think, I know how I'm going to die. You know, I'll live till I'm 95. I'll go to the doctor one day, and he'll say, you know, I think this is it for you. So you'll go home, and you'll make sure the insurance papers are in order, and the will says what you want it to say, and then you'll call in your children and grandchildren and give them a final goodbye and kiss and pull up the covers over your head and die. (laughs) But that's not how it works. Death, for the most part, is unexpected. It comes in a moment. I bring this watch into the pulpit every week because I don't want to bring in my cell phone. But I can hear it ticking. And with every tick, on average, two people die. 120 a minute, 7,200 an hour, 173,000 a day, 6.3, million a year. And one of those ticks is yours or mine. And James is simply saying, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. This life is short. And I should say by way of parenthesis while we're at it, this would be a good reminder to say to some of us listening, today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. I was witnessing to a man, and I said, look, you may not be alive next week. Oh, he didn't think that. See, we don't have the promise that we'll be alive tomorrow. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know, the Scripture says, what a day may bring. In Psalm 102, 11, it describes our life like withering grass. And then King David uses the exact identical metaphor that James is using in Psalm 39 and verse 5. He says, your life is like a mere breath. The chronicler, when he describes King David, who lived to the age of 70, he describes him as saying, our days are like a shadow. Job says, your your days are swifter than the weaver's shuttle. They're very quick. Listen to what Moses said in Psalm 90. You turn, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, you turn back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening it fades and withers away. That's just the shortness of life. Isaiah uses the imagery of a flower that sprouts. That flesh, fresh flower someone gave you yesterday. And by this afternoon it will be wilted. How arrogant it is to say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. James is reminding us that that's not an assumption you can make. Why? Because you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. As James says, our life is but a vapor. But the way we invest our vapor will determine what we are like for all of eternity. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James. 
1-800-273-0001. Maybe you would like to listen to Dr. Brokey's messages offline, in the car, or on a walk. You can do that by downloading the Search the Scriptures app found in the Apple and Google Play Store. Just type Search the Scriptures and look for the blue icon with the white triangle. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.